0: three uh you could open up right there and then also you might want to put a finger put a thumb in acts chapter six we'll be in both of those spots this morning uh i wanted to say one thing as, as you're turning there uh is that last song that we just sang that that we wrote uh here uh chad wilkerson did all the music for that and i wanted y'all to make sure you told him thank you for that uh if you know chad he's got a crazy mind when it comes to that kind of stuff and so like even this week, Mariah was like toying with some new song lyrics and some things that she'd written down and she'd send it to him and all of a sudden she'd get a text back and chad be like, what do you think about this, right? And you can hear him playing guitar and he was doing all kinds of stuff on that. And so uh, crazy talented in that regard. And so you guys make sure you give him a hug as well uh, and tell him thank you, okay? Uh, so First Timothy chapter 3 and uh, Rick is going to read it starting in verse 8. Likewise deacons must be reverent not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, with their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house well. For those who have served well as deacons, Obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, your word. Uh, Thank you for what it teaches us and shows us. I thank you for um, the practical instructions that that are found in your word. And Father, today we're going to look at at some of that. Uh, I pray that you be with each and every member of this congregation today uh, as they prepare to, to vote um, that Father, as we look at what the qualifications are for deacons, I pray that first and foremost they would vote for men of character, um, men who exemplify these things, um, Father. Not for for men with good business acumen, or um, Father, that may be talented in their job, but but character. Spiritual character important is uh, is very important as well, Father, and that's the thing that, that your word tells us. And so uh, I pray that, that you would be with our congregation today. Uh, I thank you for this list of men that we have to vote on, Father, and how I believe with all my heart that these men fulfill these qualifications, uh, and how blessed we are to have such a great list of men. Uh, and I just pray, as Jay said so well a minute ago, is that um, as we are looking even at deacons and voting for new deacons uh, that, Father, above all, the gospel would be held up about what you did for us, Father, is as you sent your son Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve, to take our place, to become sin for us, Father, and then to rise again, showing that what he did on the cross um, paid our, bet, our debt, <laughs> paid our bills, and that now for those of us who have trust in your atoning work, we are saved and we are made right with you, all because of Jesus And his servant heart to lay down his life for us. Thank you, Father. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So usually, as you guys know, we we work our way verse by verse through books. Uh, of the Bible. And right now we are in the book of Exodus, but we're going to push pause this week. Uh, and then next week we'll jump back in and we will uh, cover all of chapter five next week. Okay. Uh, but for today, we're going to be looking at deacons. Uh, we will be having a vote here at the end of the church to elect new deacons to our church. Uh, and so what we're going to do is spend a little time trying to see what the qualifications are of deacons. And so in the Bible. There are only two ordained offices in the church, right? Those two ordained offices are pastor and deacon. And so to ordain simply means to to lay hands on or to pray over someone, to appoint them or commission them for a specific task or a specific office, And so when we ordain deacons, we're uh, appointing them or commissioning them to a specific task in the church. Um, When I was a young pastor at First Baptist Church, Olton, they laid hands on me, they ordained me, they commissioned me for a specific task in that they said, hey, we believe this young man fits the qualifications to be a pastor. And so they ordained me to do that. In the book of Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this, it says, Paul and Timothy Servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So in other words, the pastors, the elders, and the deacons in the church. And so what we have are two distinct offices. And what you see in the Bible is that there is a practical division of labor between these two offices. And so today, here's what I want to attempt to do, all right? I want to show you first and foremost where we get the template for deacon ministry in the Bible, okay? And then I want to show you just quickly how we drifted from that template throughout church history, and then I want to call you to what the Bible says and show you what we should be looking for in the men that you currently have as deacons and in the men that you will vote for today, and so if you're sitting in here and you're like, ah, great, right? What does what this got to do with me today? I'm, I'm going to tell you, all right? First off, you need to know how a church is structured, right? The, the, the reason um, that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 13 is in there is because, one, the Bible tells us that it's profitable for training. It's profitable for teaching us what the church looks like. As believers of Jesus Christ, we should desire for a healthy church, the whole book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, was written to show us what a healthy, functioning church looks like. And so if you're in here and you're like, well, man, I, I guess that's, that's, that's why I'm here, then yes, it is. You're here to see what that looks like, right? But listen, it's also important because it shows you what your leaders are supposed to look like. I mean, it shows you how pastors or elders are to behave. It shows you how deacons or servants in the church are to function within the church, In verse 15 of of chapter 3, Paul says that he writes these things to show all of us how we're to behave in the household of God, okay? So these things are very practical for each and every one of us in this room, because again, as as members of a local church, we should desire for our church to be healthy. We should desire for our church to be biblical and look like the way it's laid out for us in the Bible. So to understand where deacons come from, I need you to look over in Acts chapter 6 first, okay? Okay? Probably should have had you turn there first. I'm sorry. Flip over to Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, we read these words It says, Now in these days, When the disciples were increasing in numbers, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, okay? So let me tell you what's going on here. So Jesus is already risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. In Acts chapter 2, he sends the Holy Spirit to take up residence in the hearts of the apostles and all those who would believe. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up and he preaches this message. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The Bible tells us that 3,000 men received Christ that day. That's just the men. We're not talking their families, women, children, right? And then soon after that, we're told another 2,000 come to faith. And so what's going on by the time you get to Acts chapter 6 is that the church is exploding. It's growing. And what goes on here in chapter 6 is a threat to the unity of the early church. So what you had taking place is that you had a number of Hellenistic Jews or Greek Jews, If you read the Old Testament, you find out that 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel were scattered by the Assyrians. Basically, they were lost to history. And so you had all these Jews who had grown up speaking Greek. Now, they're getting close to the end of their lives, and what they want to do is they want to come back home to Jerusalem to die in their home country. And that's exactly what happened, is that a number of the men died, leaving widows behind. Now, on the other hand, you had native Aramaic-speaking Jews who were discriminating against the Greek-speaking Jews. So Pentecost comes. You have thousands of Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ. You have the gospel-changing lives. And conversion, as wonderful as it was, didn't erase all their prejudices. So the Greek-speaking widows soon felt left out of the distribution of food. Now, whether they were or they weren't, perception is reality. And so word reaches the apostles. In verse 2, we read these words. and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the apostles get together and they say, hey, man, we, we can't give up the teaching of the word of God to serve tables. Th- that word serve there, there in the Greek is, is the word diakaneo, right? It's where we get our word deacon, diakaneo. So they say, listen, appoint some men for this task of serving. And so this simply means exactly what it means, is that these men were elected to serve the early church. So the first role of what would become the deacon ministry is not administration, but unity. That the deacons, and I like this description, were shock absorbers. They're shock absorbers. These men were elected to keep the unity of the early church. Jamie Dunlap says that unity building was their primary goal. Good administration was the means, right? And so I'll brag on our deacons very quickly. They do a great job of being shock absorbers, right? I mean, they've had to deal with me for five years, right? I've caused enough problems, right, that they've had to put out fires. We've had to do things behind the scenes that have never gotten out because they've done a good job being shock absorbers and keeping the unity of the church, so what we should do first and foremost, and what you need to understand, is that we elect our deacons for their track record of peacemaking, first and foremost, and secondarily for their administrative skills, right? Too often, especially in our Baptist churches, we've gone, well, hey, old brother so-and-so, he's a really good businessman. That's the guy we need as a deacon. No, that's not the first qualification of being a deacon. It's unity. It's peacekeeping. And so the disciples said, hey man, pick out men who can keep the peace, who can minister to the needs of the widows. In other words, who can head up the benevolence ministry of the church. And so they say they picked out seven men full of the spirit and wisdom. And because of that, it says the disciples devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the second thing these men did was it freed the pastors up to pray and to preach the word of God. According to Christianity Today, the average pastor spends three minutes a day in prayer. Now, I assume these are probably bigger churches, okay, because I don't feel like that way for, for Joe and I here in Spearman, but I can also understand why that would be the case, because as pastors, we feel like we have to be at everything. We have to be around, that we have to oversee all these ministries, that we have to do this, we have to do that, right? Especially in a small town, like, you know, I'm a plumber, I'm a janitor, you know, i got to take the van down all the time. You know, I mean, all these things. Like, we've got all these different roles that we, we have to fulfill. And so sometimes we don't have time to do these things. And so deacons help in that ministry. They help by caring for widows and checking on members, doing visitation, and freeing the, ho- the pastor up to have time to pray. But it also frees him up to study and preach the Word of God. I've said this for five years. I'll keep saying it. That is my primary job. My first job is to study and to preach the word of God. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse said that no man's going to be able to fill the pulpit adequately unless he spends thousands of hours year after year in the study of God's word. And so the first deacons or the template for deacon ministry here was to keep the peace and then to free the pastor up to pray and study the word of God. And if you look at the unity it created, it said right there in verse 5 that, that it pleased the whole assembly of what happened. And the result in verse 7 says that the word of God went out, that people were saved, and that lives were changed. So that was the first role and function of the deacons to be shock observers, absorbers, to serve alongside the pastor as under shepherds. They're a team and deacon ministry functioned like this through the early church, okay? That's that's what happened. Charles W. DeWeese tells us this. He said, in the 2nd through the 5th centuries, deacons were agents of the charity provided through the church, providing for widows and orphans. They visited the sick, and as early as the 3rd century, had what would several centuries later be called deacon family ministry. They visited martyrs in prison, Helped train new converts. They kept watch over church members, reporting to the bishop any who seemed about to fall away. They carried out administrative assignments given them by their bishops and met daily to receive instruction from him. So it functioned very much like we see in Acts chapter 6. And it did that for several years until we get to the Middle Ages, right? Good old Middle Ages, good old Dark Ages. In the Middle Ages, the deacons seemed to assume more of an elder role. Again, Charles DeWeese tells us that no one was ordained to the diaconate unless he attended to advance to the priesthood. In fact, one Catholic writer says the deacons eventually could assume to the office of archdeacon and by the 5th century held the church's finances. I love this. Listen to this. When they became too powerful, the bishops would say, kick them upstairs, meaning make them a priest and take away all their power. St. Jerome said that the archdeacon thinks himself injured if ordained, if, if ordained priest, for then he would lose his powerful archdioconal office. <laughs> so by the Middle Ages, we'd gone from helping and working alongside the pastor to trying to gain power and authority over the pastor, which is the opposite of service. But thank goodness we had the good old Protestant Reformation, didn't we? Right? We return to more of a biblical role, right? Sola scriptura, scripture alone. So we went back to what the Bible said the role of deacons is. Martin Luther said the diaconate is the ministry not of reading the gospel or the epistle, as is the present practice, but of distributing the church's aid to the poor. Calvin held the office of deacon in high esteem. Deacons were public officers in the church entrusted with the care of the poor. He urged that they be skilled in the Christian faith since in the course of their ministries they will often have to give advice and comfort. Indeed, the deacons in Calvin's Geneva would have been experts in what we call social work as well as pastoral care. So during the Reformation, we had to return to Scripture. And in fact, the early Baptists practiced much like the Reformers. But in 1774, the Charleston Confession of Faith, which was held by all Baptists for some period of time, had a line that would influence the work of deacons for years. The line said that deacons were in charge of the inferior services of the church and that they should relieve the pastor of secular church concerns. So this little line of of inferior services led a man named RBC Hal, pastor of FBC Nashville, to write a book called "The Deaconship." Hal said that deacons are a board of directors and have charge over the secular affairs in the kingdom of Christ. The deacons, in their own peculiar department, are, as we have said, a board of officers or the executive board of the church. Now, this book was so influential that it saw 11 printings until 1977. And so, in fact, there was a time period in Baptist life that if you were ordained a deacon, you were given R.B.C. Howe's book, okay? And so this view persisted until, as one author said, the deaconship had become something which worked like the board of trustees of a college, doing little of the actual work but setting policy, hearing reports from the staff, and giving assignments, Maybe you've been in a Baptist church where that's how deacons functioned, okay? I have been in one where the, the deacons functioned that way. In fact, my, my previous church, we had a man who was chairman of the deacons for like 30 years, even though the bylaw said he was supposed to roll over every year, Okay. We're going to get you off soon, Shane, okay? Okay, I got you, buddy. I got you, okay? Uh, Shane doesn't want it, okay? This guy wanted it, okay? And in fact, I'll never forget one meeting where he was sitting up telling everybody what they were going to do. Finally, somebody spoke up and said, hey, that's not what the Bible said. This deacon, red face, goes, well, I don't care what the Bible... And then he sat down. He never came back to another deacon's meeting after that. <laughs> and what was funny is after he left... All of a sudden, the deacons went back to a more biblical role of what they were supposed to be, okay? And so thankfully, beginning subtly in the late 50s, and really it intensified in the 1970s, there were repeated rejections of this model and a call to get back to the biblical understanding of what a deacon is. Robert Naylor said this, he says, There are churches where deacons have appropriated to themselves authority, which is contrary to the New Testament teaching. It may have gone so far that bossism has developed. There's a board complex and a general feeling that deacons are directors of the church. Nothing could be further from the Baptist genius or the New Testament plan. Anywhere this condition exists, there inevitably are those who say deacons are not needed. The truth is that such deacons as this are not needed in churches. Dr. Howard Foshee in his book, The Ministry of the Deacon says, The unfortunate turn, Board of Deacons, arose... The phrase is foreign to the way Baptists should work together under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And he says a Baptist congregation makes corporate decisions as each member seeks to vote his conviction under the leadership of the Lord, right? We will do that in a moment, right? We will make decisions as a congregation as you, the members, make your own decision. He goes on to describe the original seven men The first responsibility of these men was to assist the pastor in the spiritual ministry of shepherding and caring for the flock and to free the pastor for the ministry of prayer, preaching, and training. Actually, these seven men were selected to be under shepherds of the flock. And that's the biblical model. Now let me just tell you this, the reason that this drift happens and the reason that we go away from biblical models of what the church is supposed to look like and deacons are supposed to look like is because of biblical illiteracy. Is because people stop reading their Bibles and then they start getting in their head that, hey, what the best thing to do would be is to adopt business practices from the secular world and then bring those into the church instead of looking and seeing what God's word has to say and allowing that to bear weight on our lives, okay? And so today, that's what we're going to do. So turn back to 1 Timothy chapter three, all right? And we're gonna go through the biblical, biblical qualifications of what it means to be a deacon, all right? Now, As you're turning there, hear me on this. These qualifications focus on character, not administrative skills, right? They focus on character, not administrative skills. So we should look for character in these men long before we look for administrative prowess, okay? I'm going to urge you to do that. Again, I've seen that happen too many times where we look for administrative skills over what the Bible says. So if you will, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And and let me just do this, okay? Let's just start in in verse 1. That way I don't get left out of this. Let's read what it talks about for pastors or elders, and then we'll read what it talks about for deacons. So chapter 3 verse 1 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent. I'm pretty violent. But gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. I'm working on it. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And in verse 8, it says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So in verse 8, respectability is the operative term here. So, so in the original language, and if you have an ESV, all of these character traits in verse 8 are defined by the word not. Not. That, that is the, the first word there. So first off, they must not be double-tongued, right? So what's that mean? It means that he's the kind of man who says one thing to one man and a different thing to another man, right? He's double-tongued. He says different things. He's the kind of man who Will Rogers described as not afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. That's pretty funny. He's respectable because he's credible, and he's credible because he's truthful. That's what that means. Not addicted to much wine, right? Doesn't need much explanation. Again, Baptist, breathe. The Bible never says you can't drink, ever. But it does have a lot to say about drunkenness. And so right here, it's saying that he must not be addicted to must nine. he must not be a drunkard. So what it means as servant leaders, listen, I'd go as far as to tell you as believers in in Jesus Christ, we must constantly be aware of the damage our actions can have on those around us, right? Romans chapter 14 verse 13 says, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother, so we're saying as deacons that you must be careful how you live because outsiders are watching you, right? How many times have you guys been in churches before where you've heard, well, them deacons over at the Baptist church, right? Or, or whatever church it is, right? That's what it means. Not addicted to much wine. Second, not greedy for dishonest gain. So it's not wrong to earn money, to spend money, to invest money or save money. None of those things are wrong. But the danger is being so attached to it that we're motivated to acquire it dishonestly. So a so trustworthy saying is this: We're never more like Jesus than when we give. Jesus was generous in dying for us, in giving up his life for us, and as deacons, as leaders. Once again, listen, as believers in Jesus, we should be generous. That the Bible gives us clear warnings about the dangers of being greedy and no deacon serves faithfully if he's greedy. Deacons serve more faithfully when they're generous, they're open-handed to their church, to their community, to their friends, to their family. They're very generous people. That's what that means, all right? Verse nine, it says that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So if you look at those qualifications of, of elder. They're very similar, except elders or pastors are required to be able to teach and preach the Word. And so deacons are not required to be able to teach, but what Paul says is they must hold the mystery of the faith. Mystery is a a term commonly used by Paul to talk about something that at one time was hidden, but now has been revealed by those who have spiritual discernment. In Ephesians 6 19, Paul says, And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So the mystery in the Old Testament was how can God forgive sins? It was answered by Jesus' death as he suffered the wrath of God that we deserve, thus making forgiveness possible. So what it's saying here is that those who are deacons and those who aspire to the office of being a deacon must understand this mystery of the gospel. They must hold on to it. They must be able to articulate that Christ Jesus died on the cross for their sins. In fact, he became sin for them. And if they believe, or anyone believes, trusting in His atoning work alone, they will be saved. In a word, deacons and those who aspire to the office must understand the mystery of the cross and be able to articulate that. In fact, the men who are elected, when they go through an ordination council, the first question they will be asked is, share the gospel. Tell us what the gospel is, because they need to be able to to articulate that. But Paul says they have to do that with a good conscience. And so if you read the book of 1 Timothy, you see conscience is a huge theme in the book. So what it means is that it's not enough to just say you believe the message of the gospel intellectually, is that it must so have penetrated your heart that now you're living that message out in all that you do. That the word of God is dwelling in your hearts richly, as Paul would say in the book of Colossians. What he wants you to know is that what you say about the gospel and how you live the gospel go hand in hand. You can't separate those two things out. That's what he means by a clear conscience, okay? Verse 10. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, testing's alluded to several times in 1 Timothy. In chapter 5, verse 22, it says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. In verse 24 of chapter 5, he says that the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. In other words, they're obvious. Everybody can see their sins a mile away. They know who they are. But then he says, but the sins of others appear later. So what Paul means right here in verse 10 is he's referring to the deacon's reputation. That pressures are inevitably going to come as deacons exercise their ministries. And what will happen is that their inner life will become evident. All right? Remember my story I just told. I don't care what the Bible says. That became evident in that man's life as he exercised his ministry. All of us in this room are like saturated sponges. If we apply enough pressure to a sponge, immediately we see what fills that sponge. The pressures of the deacons' ministry will reveal what they're made of. So what he's saying is that the deacons must be proven by reputation. This also means that the men we vote in need to be actively involved in a place of service in this church before they become deacons. Again, I go back to the fact that so often we vote men in who are good at businessmen, um, they've got a good reputation in the community, but they serve or they're nowhere involved in the church, but we go, well, hey man, that guy's a good businessman, let's put him in there. But that's not what Paul tells us to do, is that they must be tested, right? So let me tell you this, you're going to get a list here in a minute, and every single one of the men on that list are involved in some place of service in this church, Right? A bunch of those men are involved in ways that you guys don't see them because not all of you are here on Wednesday night. They're helping with the students. They're helping with the kids. right? One of these guys has taken my job away. I don't have anything to do on Wednesday night anymore. Some of them are door greeters. They stand back at the door and they shake your hand and they give you bulletins. They're ushers. They're involved in a small group or a home group. In fact, one of them leads a home group. He's very hospitable in that. And so I believe that every one of these men on this list have been tested in the way that they are serving, they are involved, and they are making a difference in the life of this church, right? As one wise lady I heard this last Wednesday night say, is that the deacons are the face of the church. And so I think you would do good with any of these men to add them to our list because they are doing these things already, okay? Verse 11 their wives, likewise, must be dignified, <clears throat> not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, there's a lot of argument on this scripture, and some people believe that this scripture is arguing for female deacons, all right, because that word wives could also be translated women, right? And so I am one that tends to believe that that is a possibility, but since you guys are Baptist, we won't go there right now, okay? So breathe. So what it's saying for our context is this is that a deacon must have a wife whose respectability matches his own. So in the same way, the wives must be dignified or respectable. So ladies, listen to me. You either help or hurt your husband's ministry. Period. All right? That goes for pastors and overseers as well, I promise you. I've seen wives hurt a man's ministry. So ladies, you either help or you hurt. Right? She's not to be a slanderer. Which, is, uh, which refers to, to one who's given to finding fault in others, right? Who's always pointing out everybody else's faults. They're always saying, well, you know, their kids or that, you know, whatever. And they're always just pointing out, right? The reason Acts 6 exists was to bring unity amidst the grumbling. So ladies, you're not to cause division, to stir up strife. She's to be sober-minded or temperate. So, so ladies, what I tell you is this. This means the same thing it does for your husband, for pastors, and for all of God's children, okay? Can you handle alcohol responsibly or do you abuse it? Can you be on social media and use it responsibly? And I am talking to adults because most of y'all can't use it responsibly. I mean, some of y'all sharing recipes every five seconds. Okay, Mary, you're never going to make any of those things, but keep sharing them, all right? Go ahead. Ooh, sorry. Baby boomers, I'm sorry. Baby boomers, they love their Facebook, all right? Can you enjoy good food and not overindulge? Here's a good one. Can you take care of yourself physically without finding your identity and working out? That's huge in our society today, isn't it? See, there's balance, there's temperance. That's what he means, So they're faithful in all things. That just means you're reliable. That if you say you'll be there, you're there. People can count on you, ladies. That's what it means. See, this is the kind of woman who's priceless, as Proverbs 31 says. And together with her husband, they form a strong servant team for the Lord and the church that is valuable beyond measure. Once again, I I think you look at the list that you'll see here in a moment. I think every one of the men on that list, ladies, you feel that qualification well. You're serving You're a great asset to these men, and we thank you for that. All right, verse 12. Let's get into some controversy. All right, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. All right, now we've got a lot of ink spilt on this one. We've had people get upset in churches before over this one. This is literally translated, all right? So go back to your Greek. It is literally translated a one-woman woman. Man, right? So this is not referring to marital status, but to moral character, but to moral character. Dr. John MacArthur, right, who is far more conservative than any of you in the room, says this, "'Others hold that this qualification excludes divorced men from spiritual leadership. That again ignores the fact that Paul is not referring to marital status, nor does the Bible forbid all remarriage after divorce.' In Matthew 5, 31 through 32, and Matthew 19, 9, our Lord permitted remarriage when divorce was caused by adultery. Paul gave a second occasion when remarriage is permitted, when the unbelieving spouse initiates the divorce. While God hates all divorce, Malachi 2, 16, he is gracious to the innocent party in those situations. Since, marriage, since remarriage in and of itself is not a sin, it is not necessarily a blight on a man's character. Okay? Now, MacArthur goes on to say, but if the divorce resulted from a man's inability to lead his family, however, then that is a disqualification. So in other words, what he's saying is that if you have a man who is a deacon and he goes through that, that man should be removed. Th- that's what he means right there, okay? That's what, Paul, that's what he's getting at. So in other words, verse 12 means that he's only thinking about his wife, whoever that is, it may be a second one, okay? But if he's been married to her for a long period of time and that it makes him a one-woman man, it means that she has all his affections, that he pursues his own joy in the holy joy of his wife. That's what it means, right? So it does not exclude men who've been divorced and remarried, all right? This is about character, not marital status. He says that they must manage their children, and that doesn't mean that your kids should be perfect or never struggle, all right? So that's good. a so load off of some of you in the room. a so load off of me. What it does mean is this, is that you're raising your kids to love Jesus, that the priorities of your home would indicate that you're discipling them around Jesus, that you're discipling them around the church. It means that if we would ask your kids who's leading in your family, we'd go, hey kids, who prays? Who opens the Bible? Who gets up and encourages everybody to get around and to go to church in the morning? That the kids, deacons, potential deacons, they would say, man, dad's the one who leads out in that. Dad's the one who's taking those responsibilities on himself. Managing your household is the next thing. It just means that home is the basic God-ordained unit of society. It's in the home where deacons develop their servanthood. It starts right there, gentlemen. If you can't serve your wife and children, then listen, you got no business serving this church. So lead your family first. Lead them well, knowing that, listen, you'll be held accountable for how you lead them. I've said this before, I'll say it again. If Jesus showed up at your house today, man, knocked on the door, your wife answered the door, he'd look at you and say, I'll deal with you later, where's he at? We will be held accountable for how we lead our families. And please, I need everybody in the church to listen to me on this. Please. That is your job as a parent to educate your children and to teach them about Jesus. It starts in Deuteronomy chapter six, right? It runs throughout the entirety of the Bible, all right? What happens too many times, and I've seen it, because I was a student pastor, is we put undue weight On the student pastor, and say, Well, it's his job to teach my kids about Jesus. And why do we do it? Because we're lazy and we don't want to do it ourselves. Okay? That's what it means, is that you're teaching your kids about Jesus. Not not Joe, right? Now, Now, Joe's doing a great job, and some of you need to thank him. He's doing a wonderful job, and Joe's job is to be a bridge between the church and the home, but for you to put the primary weight of him leading your children on him is wrong, right? It starts with us at home, okay? Is, that, is everybody good on that? All right, so men, lead your families well. And finally, in verse 13, it says, for those who serve well as deacons, they gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So in other words, deacons who serve well, they get a two-fold reward. First with men, and then ultimately with God the Father. So what it means is this, is is deacons, current deacons, those who will potentially be deacons. Listen to me, your life speaks. So so because of your elder-like respectability, because of your informed belief as you hold the mystery of the faith, right? Your, Your living belief that issues in a clear conscience, your tested life oozes with character, your helpmate, is your best qualification. Amen. And you are graciously domesticated in relation to your wife and to your kids. All of this provides the deacon with an excellent standing with the people. But it also gives them a reward with Jesus Christ because they have great confidence in Jesus Christ. There's an ever deepening confidence in drawing close to Christ. So what this means is is this. Like, Listen to me is that if it's true what the leadership is in microcosm, the congregation will become in macrocosm. So then the character of those who feel the office of elder, Joe, myself, of deacons, is of the utmost importance. So, brothers and sisters, it means that first off, you should be praying for your deacons. They have a big role in the church. They're the ones who lead out. They go first, pray for them. Pray for these men that will potentially be deacons. Deacons, brothers, you have a high and difficult calling. You really do. But hear me, you're vital to the work of this church. You're not a board of directors. you're under shepherds, and you labored alongside Joe and I for the sake of the gospel right here in Spearman, Texas. That's a big deal. You have a high calling, and in fact, you have a calling that finds its roots in the gospel. Jay read this this morning, but in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, Paul says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now talking about Jesus, this is what he says. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is that as deacons, your calling is rooted in the gospel is that Jesus gave up his life for his church and now we give up our lives for our brothers and sisters here in the family of God, right? One pastor said this, that deacons are table servants. They serve the table of the Lord, the table of the poor, and the table of the pastor. So pastors lead out in ministry. Deacons facilitate the ministry, right? They're the first to serve and the congregation then gets in behind them and they do the ministry. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, I'll call us into business. Um, if you're a guest or a member here, I promise this will be quick and painless. All right, Shane's going to come up and give us some instructions.